Today's episode is made possible by the generous support of Charon Law Offices. Located in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Steve Charon and his team work with startup companies offering a full range of legal services. No matter what stage your startup is in, the team at Charon Law Offices can help you. From structuring to developing stock option plans to assisting with fundraising arrangements, Charon Law Offices can guide you through the process. For more information, email steve at charonlawoffices.com or call 412-880-5633. Visit their website at charonlawoffices.com for more information. Charon Law Offices, from startup to exit and everything in between. You can follow us on Twitter at BroadcastPGH and find us on Facebook at TheBroadcast underscore PGH and Instagram at TheBroadcast underscore PGH. Our website is broadcast-podcast.com where you can find all of our past episodes. If you want to support the show, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash broadcastpgh. If you'd like to sponsor or otherwise partner with the show, we'd love to talk to you. Drop us a line at broadcastpgh at gmail.com. Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Broadcast Podcast. I'm your host. I'm the only host tonight. Unfortunately, my co-host, Natalie Benzavenga, isn't able to be with us. I'm looking at an empty chair and missing her, but she'll be back soon. Um, We wanted to make sure we had some episodes ready to roll. And we have so many amazing women we need to have conversations with. We couldn't hold back. Um, And we're really lucky tonight. I'm really glad to have with us um, Abby Gardner. She's with Scotty Public Affairs and she's worked on, she's someone that I sort of been Twitter buddies with for a while and is, has worked with a lot of the candidates. Um, she's part on the board of Emerge and working with candidates that are not the typical, not the uh, stereotypical, I guess I should say, uh, political candidates. It's been part of this new wave of candidates, a lot of women candidates who are kind of challenging our, the way we think about politics. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about just coming off the midterms. I'm really excited to sort of get your take on what comes next and, you know, how things went, what you think maybe we should do differently or, um, so welcome to the broadcast podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to meet you in real life. I know it's weird when you like have communicated with someone for a while, you haven't actually met them face to face. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's what she looks like. Um, so let's talk a little bit about just about the midterm sort of in general, midterm elections have just passed. And uh, the Democrats have regained control of the House, which was sort of widely expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about, do you think the expectations were realistic, unrealistic? It, it seemed like they sort of slowly built. Like there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy, but that it's slowly built to become, okay, this looks like it's going to happen. It's not going to be a repeat of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, coming off that sort of high of, yes, look, this is what happened. Democrats mm-hmm. were able to sort of make a, some serious inroads. Um, what, um, was there something that you think was the, I don't want to say the deciding factor, but in the candidates who won, it seemed like there was uh, just a kind of enthusiasm that maybe we haven't really seen. Definitely not with midterm elections right. in quite some time. Was there a commonality? Was there one factor that you think the winning candidates, the, specifically the Democratic candidates, right. had that made the difference? Well, I think across the board, a good litmus test for if someone is going to be successful or not is a little bit of an intangible, are they a good fit for their district? Yeah. yeah. And that's whatever level of Congress you're running, or not Congress, whatever level of office you're running for. I think someone who's actually rooted in their community who has a lot of relationships, 
um, who people are connecting with and genuinely excited Mm -hmm. about because they feel like this person gets me and they understand me. Mm -hmm. And districts are different. So what does that look like for New Mexico too? you know, or Pennsylvania Mm for, it's going to be different. And so I don't, if there is a commonality, I think it's that. I think we've seen more and more where people fall short and you hate to, I hate to um, think about someone who lost and say, well, that's why they lost because I do respect everybody who tries. It's so hard hard. and it's not a job you get a lot of um, thanks necessarily for doing, especially after you lost. Right. Right? Right. So I I hate to look at the losing candidates and be like, eh, you could kind of, you know, could kind of see that coming. But there certainly were candidates who I would look back at previous cycles and say, yeah, we used to think that model was a good idea. Mm -hmm. The really rich person who is was born here but hasn't lived here for a while and yeah. moved back in yeah. the last two years. Mm-hmm. And the party establishment is really excited about because they can self-fund and they yeah. don't have to raise money. Um, I don't think that model works very yeah. well in this environment. Um, it is easier to write yourself a very large check <laughs> than yeah. it is to go out <laughs> and, and raise yeah. yeah, and raise the money. But I actually had this conversation with a different reporter probably a couple months before election day, that it, it certainly is easier. It saves a lot of time. Yeah. If you talk to candidates who spend all their time fundraising, they will tell you I spend too much time fundraising. If I could be out knocking doors yeah. or doing anything else, that would be so much better for their campaign. And that's there is something to that. But if you just write yourself the big check, there is no test or check mm-hmm. and balance on you're less accountable is there real enthusiasm yeah. for this person? yeah yeah are they really connecting with people yeah. do they have a good story mm-hmm. you kind of get to skip over that whole like kicking the tires phase yeah um yeah. where people decide if they like you or not and, and if you're not well known that's that's crucial right that's crucial yeah. is making sure people know who you are and yeah you know. i mean certainly governor wolf was able to self-fund the mm-hmm. first time he ran yeah And then people got to know him. They decided they liked him. He's had the benefit of running against some extremely unpopular opponents. So, but he didn't have to self-fund this time. People were ready to be there for him. Um, So there's certainly, certainly still times where the self-funding thing helps tremendously. But I, I also noticed this time where it didn't work. Yeah. And I think that might be an increasing trend when we see so many of these Democratic candidates had unbelievable fundraising success mm-hmm. online with small donors that used to be something that only happened with a Bernie Sanders or only happened yeah. with a Barack Obama. And now it looks like it can happen lower down the ballot. Yeah. More and more people have figured out how they can connect with a lot of people, ask them for $10. Um, and that can actually really change the game, I think, for how all of this works. Yeah, and I I've noticed there was sort of the the typical last minute negativity against a lot of candidates, especially a lot against a lot of women candidates. Lindsay Williams is what I'm thinking of locally, mm-hmm. who just kind of had this barrage near the end of questioning the legitimacy of her candidacy, and you know, sort of trying to lumber in as a socialist as making that a bad thing. And you know, she really withstood an awful lot right near the end, but she ended up winning. And I wonder if you know, does that I hate to use one local race as, as a bellwether for anything. Certainly, you know, it's unique to the district she ran in. Absolutely. And a credit to her for running a good campaign. But I wonder if so the 
self-funded wealthy candidates sort of gone. Jeremy gonna, spent a half million dollars of his own money. Yes. And so is that model of using the last few weeks of the campaign to go super negative, is that model going to continue? I wonder if that has worn on its welcome. Well, people are really, really tired of it. I do think people are tired of it. I do think people keep doing it, though, because it is effective. I think yeah. Jeremy played extremely fast and loose mm. and was incredibly sloppy with how negative he was. Mm. And um, I I did help Lindsay on her campaign. I love Lindsay. We're friends with her. She's an Emerge alum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm personally very invested in sure. her success. Sure. Um, but Jeremy came really close. Yeah. You know, it 550 votes. And Is that how close it was? Yeah. Just, we wow. could have had a bad election night. So, wow. um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think the negativity stuff is necessarily going to go away. Yeah. But I do think it didn't resonate as much. I, I do think it backfired somewhat, and I don't think it resonated as much as he expected it would. Yeah. And I think the backfiring came from the fact that he was this self-funder yeah. who was pretending that third-party groups were setting up these attacks. Yeah. And then it was exposed through good reporting that it really was just Jeremy's campaign doing it under another label. Yeah. And I think that exposed who he really is, which was in stark contrast to the positive image he was trying to paint of himself. And I think that backfired. I think that turned some people off. Yeah. I mean, I think you can be a sort of gritty candidate who's, you know, bare knuckle, but, you know, be that candidate. Right. People don't like a liar. Well, yeah. They don't like people who misrepresent themselves. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a bare knuckle candidate who drops an F-bomb now and again, be that candidate, you know, but don't pretend that you're something else. Right. I think that's what I think people get really, really tired of, right? Is yes. They, they, I think people are really tired of politicians speaking to them like they're stupid or like they, they, they're dumb enough to, to be tricked into thinking a certain way mm-hmm. that people are so fed up with, I think that kind of politicking mm-hmm. that hopefully, you know, <laughs> politicians have learned their lesson from that, but I don't know. I think well, it's. Yeah. I mean, everybody has talked about how, how candidates need to be authentic to really connect with people and be true to who they are. Yeah. Um, And that's, I think, part of being good fit for your district. But also, yeah, I think it's increasingly hard to maybe get away with some of the um, two-faced stuff that maybe used to happen in other cycles, but Mm -hmm. was harder to trace back to the root of it. Well, that's another sort of aspect of political reporting now. Right now, it's it's, the internet has added this 24, not even like a 24-hour news cycle. It's like, you know, a 10-minute news cycle mm-hmm. where something can cycle through so fast that things that happened last week seem like they're ancient history, right? So how, you know, how does that affect a candidate's ability to be, you know, you're always on your guard, right? You always mm-hmm. sort of have to be ready to counter mm-hmm. something that's going to be thrown at you by your opponent or by another group or what have you. So how do candidates in this cycle or in this sort of this field now who are in this brave new world, who have this constant on, there's always, you know, opposition researchers filming you at every rally and Mm -hmm. there's all this constant, constant attention. Mm -hmm. How do you sort of prepare candidates for that? I would say sort of tactically, one thing that perhaps has changed that people do need to think about when they're running more or differently is that the concept of message consistency takes on a whole new level when you are being recorded mm-hmm. in any room all the time. Yeah. So while I think it was always important to have the same message regardless of who you were talking to, it was possibly easier to 
you know, really say kind of one thing when you're with the unions yeah. and then a different thing when you're yeah. at the Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you kind of said a different thing, yeah. you know, in this meeting or a different thing at this fundraiser. And you can't do that anymore. Yeah. You better have one message no matter what room you're in because even someone who's not trying to hurt you, maybe they're trying to help you, yeah. they're still live streaming you and putting you on yeah. Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they might think they're helping, but um, you know, I just I first time candidates can be kind of undisciplined with yeah. that because they start to realize they want to play to the room mm-hmm. and the feedback they're getting in the room and they see I'm saying something, it's not really connecting with this audience. Yeah. They're not feeling me. I'm gonna change course and start to say something else. Yeah. And yeah. um, and that's not gonna work anymore if yeah. you are out there twenty four seven, which you you are and you should be. It it helps. Yeah. I mean, if you have a constant online presence, if you have a campaign that can be live streaming and tweeting and Facebook living and sharing what you're doing all the time, that's a good thing. Yeah. People can find you more easily. They know how to get involved in your campaign. They know what you're about. But it does require that 24-7 discipline. Yeah, that vigilance of just knowing that you're always on, you're always going to be you're going to be held accountable for everything that comes out of your mouth. So you which, better be comfortable in your own skin because people are going to see it. Yeah. You can't really fake your way yeah. through and, that. And I think that's that's really become more evident. You know, it used to be you had to be sort of photogenic to be on television, but now you have to be – if you're faking it, people are going to pick up on it a lot sooner yep. uh, than they used to. And I just think of some of the candidates that you can tell um, when the authenticity is – for the cameras and when it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. the people really yeah, have people pick, pick up, up on, on that. Yeah, they pick up on it. And I think of a candidate like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who yeah, she's, um, there's been a lot of, I'm just thinking sort of the negative things that have been thrown at her. And she was, someone was criticizing her when she made a comment about how she couldn't afford to get an apartment in DC because she'd have a salary. And she really turned it around in a way that was like, well, that's not something to be ashamed of. That's just a reality of, yeah. you know, working class people. And I, I thought like that's someone who's really understands how to be authentic and genuine all the time. So what lessons are going to be taken from 2018 and from the midterms that can carry over for candidates into 2020? And, you know, maybe some of them are, you know, blueprints to be used going forward. Maybe it's just things that no one could have predicted or expected. So what what do you expect to see in, as candidates sort of look at 2020 and, and think of what office they're going to run for and who's going to pursue the presidency? You know, what do you think comes out of 2018 that could possibly translate? Yeah. Well, in terms of who's going to run for president, I have no idea because <laughs> it's this huge field where I think a ton of Democrats are going to throw their hat in. Yeah. And that primary process will work itself out. Pennsylvania is relatively late in the yeah. primary process, so we usually don't have a huge deciding factor in that. But we are a really important state, and all of the Midwestern states are really important to the success yeah. or failure of Democrats yeah. in 2020. So whoever you know rises to the top, I – personally hope has the ability to play well here, Michigan, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, those are just absolute must wins for Democrats yeah. to have a successful yep. 2020. Um, I think Toomey and Casey both won't be up. So we won't right. really have a top of the ticket beyond that. All of the house seats will be up again. Yeah. Um, and they'll be in this new map that we just redistricted. Right. So everybody just won on on Tuesday, won or lost on Tuesday. It's the same seats in 2020, Um, which is interesting because those are kind of new districts. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, all of those 
congressional seats need to two years is so fast. Uh-huh. I used to work on the Hill. I worked for a member of Congress in a swing district, in a purple district. And those two years fly yeah. by. You have to spend a lot of time in your district. You have to be extremely responsive to your constituents. You're just learning how the House actually works. You're learning the vote schedule and the committee schedule mm-hmm. and how you raise money during all of these official side engagements you have. Um, so it is it is whiplash. I mean, those two years go so fast and then they're up again. And some of these seats are you know, potentially competitive. Hopefully we can, we have good momentum going into 2020 and we maintain it. Um, you know, further down the ballot, I think there's a lot of lessons that I'm still trying to unpack for Allegheny County specifically, mm-hmm. where we were successful with someone like Lindsay Williams, where she won by 550 votes. But we had a lot of Democratic women candidates for our state house seats fall short. Yeah. And I'd and love good candidates, like not bad candidates. Good candidates. Yeah. And I'd love to see everybody, our elected officials, our party, the activists, mm-hmm. the advocates. I'd really love to see everybody spend the next month or two analyzing what happened yeah. and why did we not get over the finish line with those candidates. That is why we have the Emerge program. Yeah. So Emerge is a program that started in Pennsylvania. We we convened, we formed in 2015. It's a nationwide organization. So Pennsylvania was the 17th state. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're in 25 or 27 and growing pretty rapidly. So it is this program that is designed to recruit and train Democratic women to run for office mm-hmm. with an eye on those lower down the ballot seats, those yeah. state house, state senate. So Lindsay's an emerge alum, Michelle Knoll, who just ran in the sort of Ohio Township Swickley Moon yeah. area for state house. She is an emerge alum. Um, three of the Democratic women who flipped state senate seats last Tuesday were emerge alums. Mm-hmm. Lindsay here and two on the other side of the state. So three of the five seats that we won as Democrats were emerge ladies. Yeah. And we all and then on top of that we flipped another four state house seats. They were all on the other side of the state in the mm. Philly area. So the idea behind the program is hopefully because running is such trial by fire and kind of unlike anything else you do, yeah. that if you do the Emerge program, it's this intensive training program where you learn a lot of the stuff that you would learn as a candidate. And so our idea is if you go through this you know, maybe that first run, you'll have a leg up and you'll be in a better position to win. I do think the results speak for themselves that Mm -hmm. a lot of our women did win on Tuesday. Um, It's a great way to make sure people understand what they're running for. They understand that they have to be a good fit. They understand all the parts they need in place. But even with all that training, you know, we had some people fall short and it's a team effort. Yeah, you know, we yeah. all can do more to support those women, to donate to them early, mm-hmm. to help them find good staff, to knock on doors in districts that are winnable. Mm-hmm. I think we can get easily distracted by, I want to help everybody. So how did you get into this line of work? It's definitely <laughs> takes a very specific kind of personality to pursue uh, you know, supporting political campaigns and, and helping candidates. Yeah. It's definitely, it's not for everyone. It's No, and I work. didn't, it's not like I grew up in a political family mm-hmm. or had any, um, or any, you know, family reason to do it. But I would say my, my origin story is that I was in college. I was a, a freshman uh, 
brand new freshman in college on September 11th, right? Mm -hmm. I was in class Mm -hmm. for like two weeks when September 11th, 2001 happened. And so not particularly political. We go into war in Iraq. Still not very political, not really tracking. I go on this crazy study abroad program where we travel to all these different countries and Iraq and 9-11 came up all the time. And people would ask, what's the story? And I really didn't have a good answer. So when I came home, 2004 election from the study abroad program, I said to my parents, I think I should volunteer for whoever is running against George Bush. Mm -hmm. And my parents worked at Alcoa and they happened to know a guy at Alcoa whose girlfriend was on the Carrie Edwards campaign. That is such a Pittsburgh story right there. Yeah. So (laughs) know a guy. We know a guy and his girlfriend. I mean, it turns out this guy worked at the White House in, in the Clinton years and his girlfriend also worked in the White House in the Clinton years. So these are like very established people. And I having no experience, no, I don't even think I had a resume. My college (laughs) job was I was a bus driver. Um, hadn't volunteered on campaign or anything. I reached out to this woman and she said, if you can pay your own way this summer. So just want to acknowledge my privilege that my parents paid for me so I could Mm -hmm. live in Washington DC for a summer. And I interned on the Carrie Edwards campaign. And she was just an awesome boss. So shout out to good bosses that she was so poised and thoughtful in this incredibly stressful environment. And campaigns are so unprofessional. I mean, there's no (laughs) HR department. No one's doing performance reviews. It is a mess. Mm. And she was just this beacon of that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be composed under pressure and the person that everybody in the room turns to, I think she was 26 at the time, but she just really had it together. So I followed her to multiple races after that. Mm -hmm. She kept recruiting me to come work for her. So I worked for her on multiple other races um, until we worked uh, together for a governor um, in New York who resigned in a sex scandal, Mm -hmm. at which point she was ready. She married the guy from Alcoa. Yeah. And they were ready to start a family. And so she dropped out of politics and went to the private sector for a more stable gig. And I kept doing the campaigns. So I did a few more cycles. I worked on Capitol Hill for one term for two years from 2008 to 2010 when we were in the majority. And we actually passed a lot of legislation, (laughs) which was a good time to work on the Hill. Um, And then from that, I transitioned to consulting. So... Now I have all different kinds of clients, not just candidates. And um, my my passion is to help particularly women candidates mm-hmm. and particularly people who are running down ballot. I mean, yeah. the way consultants make money on campaigns, um, if I wanted to make this my living, I would need to only work on like the Bob Casey's yeah, and the, the big ticket, the big ones, yeah. because those are campaigns with big budgets. Right. But when you look at city council and state house and state Senate, I mean, we're lucky if those candidates get over the hundred thousand yeah. dollar mark and they shouldn't spend any money on someone like me. Yeah. I mean, if they're spending money on me, they're not spending money talking to voters. Yeah. So yeah. I try to find low cost or no cost ways to, make myself available to these women. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a communications consultant, so specifically around communication stuff, yeah. um, press relations, and um, and through my eMERGE work yeah. that I do a lot of training mm-hmm. through that. And pretty much I, I get asked to do a lot of trainings. <laughs> yeah. So pretty yeah. much anything that is like a woman-focused training candidate thing, I will yeah. go do yeah. for low or no cost because – 
I don't think we will change our numbers statewide if we wait for demographics to just naturally shift. I don't, I think. The incumbents aren't just going to all suddenly step out of the way. No. Okay. It's your turn now. No, no, no. no. That was one of the early, I moved back to Pittsburgh in 2015 and that was one of the earliest conversations I had with someone who had been working in this space for a long time when I asked why are the numbers so bad here? And she said the, they won't give up their seats. Right. All of the training in the world doesn't matter if they won't give up their seats. So I agree with that. But I also think they leave eventually because they die or they go to jail (laughs) or they might retire. (laughs) Or they have a very remarkable candidate who surprises everyone and oust someone who's a long time political primary, which was an option that I honestly feel like we we almost didn't believe it was an option until yeah. this year. And yeah. that really... Do you see that gonna, is going to be a strategy moving forward that get hit the primary, hit it hard, and don't it, assume that any incumbent is untouchable? Yeah, I do I do think what we saw in this year showed that no one is untouchable. And I think it really goes back to if you're a good candidate, because I think yeah. we've seen a couple other races where other people have gotten in to try to oust incumbents, and they have stumbled off the starting blocks. Yeah, yeah. And... I almost think Summer Wee and Sarah Namrata, who were clearly referencing, yeah, like yeah. almost made it look easy because right. they won in these incredible landslides. Yeah. And it's not easy. No. And they were remarkable. They were remarkable candidates. And I, we had Sarah, and I've been trying to get Summer on the show for a while, but we had Sarah on um, early on in her campaign. And I remember interviewing her thinking she is so poised and mm-hmm. so together and so like representative of the voter that her party really needs. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to me like she was sort of the perfect storm of a candidate, Mm -hmm. right? That, that she really was, had absolutely could potentially beat the incumbent who had been in in office for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the dirty secret that some of our incumbents, not Mm -hmm. all of them have taken this for granted Yeah, and are frankly, back to my original point, they are not good fits for the district anymore. There's been so much coverage about what does DSA mean? What does socialism mean? You know, Summer and Sarah got this DSA endorsement. Is that the key to everything? And no, it's not. The key to everything is being a really good candidate who works really hard. And if you're running against someone who has been unchallenged for 10 or 20 years and their voting record no longer represents where their district is anymore, that's the perfect storm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you just have a bad incumbent who's vulnerable and needs someone to just challenge them. And they didn't even know they were vulnerable until someone stood up and challenged yeah. them. Yeah. And, and that is a completely different mindset, I think, for Democrats in the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah. The idea that we're going to challenge because incumbents it's, is, it's, is wild. It's been vote for the lesser of two evils for a lot of people for a long time, right? That you, well, I'll vote for him, even though maybe I don't agree with him on 90% of what he does, but he's, he's a Democrat. Or he's, I yeah, mean, they he's normally just right, right. are unopposed. Yeah. And when you're living in the city and the primary is kind of the only race that matters, yeah, right. you know, we need to turn out for higher up races in the general election. But, yeah. you know, most, if you live in the city, most of your, uh, your general election day ticket is going to be unopposed. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it really comes down to that primary. And it was just, it was a place people were not willing to go, I think, until Summer and Sarah showed the potential. Right. Yeah. And so as you're doing these trainings, what is the thing you think um, most candidates or would-be candidates have to be talked out of? Is there something that they come to the table and they think, 
I have to do this. And you have to say, no, really, this is the way you want it. Is there, is there like a common theme where you see you have to kind of untrain people from certain behaviors or certain ways of doing things or, or certain things they think they have to do? Not to generalize that every woman is the same because yeah. they're definitely not. But I think I do see with a lot of women candidates in particular mm -hmm. a desire to be so overly prepared on the policy yeah. and that – like someone like Erica Strasberger, I worked on her sure. city council election, and she already came into the campaign knowing literally everything there was yes. to know about city council. Yes. There was sure. not a question you could ask no. Erica that she didn't already Had her on the show earlier on too. Yeah. Yep. So really what I wanted to work with with her is how do you just be succinct in what – are your priorities yeah. because she was already smarter than everybody else in the room. She already <laughs> yeah. knew literally everything. Yeah. So you can't talk to people, regular people on that level of detail. Yeah. And so she's an extreme example because she worked in city council and knew everything before she ran for it. Even if you're new to office, I feel like there is this desire. You see women candidates who mm -hmm. are like clearly A students. And so they want to yeah. be so prepared for the test that's coming. I'm yeah. doing test in air quotes. Yep. There is no test. Nobody actually asks you to answer all of these policy questions mm -hmm. in depth. Yeah. But they will want to have binder level knowledge on every topic yeah. and be prepared to talk about it as though they're defending a PhD dissertation. Right. And it's over everybody's head. It's too much content to fit on a yeah. website, on a social media post, in a stump speech. Yeah. So as a writer, you know yeah. editing is hard. Yep. To be concise mm -hmm. is the tough part of it's it. Very tough. So Because you want to get all this information that you have, but really what's the information that you need? Just because you have the information doesn't mean you have to have it in there. Yes. Yeah. And how you translate all of that interesting policy stuff you learn into succinct priorities that people will remember about yeah. you. Yeah. That you look at Michelle Knoll and she was an early childhood educator mm -hmm. and you could remember that, that she helped kids who were having like early developmental issues. And so she was going to take that knowledge to how we fund education. And she had some really powerful talking points about how we spend so much on the prison pipeline and we don't spend that much on education. And if yeah. you flip the spending, yeah. you wouldn't need to spend the, send these many kids to prison, right? Yeah. So like little memorable things about you and your life story and your experience that mm -hmm. connect to policy in a way yeah. people will understand. Yeah. That's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. But that's how I think you're a successful candidate when it comes to communicating your message yeah. versus learning the Encyclopedia Britannica equivalent on every topic. Every single possible issue. Do you think women are worried about being viewed as single issue candidates that they're going to be, you know, expected to have certain issues that they champion education and childcare and family issues? I mean, do you think, how do you get women um, who want to talk about other issues to feel comfortable with that? Because I think there's some expectation, right? That these, these are women's issues, sure, quote unquote, yeah. right? That these are issues that women should care about, that they're going to be asked a question about, well, how are your, how's your family doing while you're on the campaign? Kind of the, you know, the questions right. everyone rolls their eyes at and gets tired of, but how do you help them, you know, shift that narrative without, you know, but, but still remain true to themselves? Cause that's hard, right? The, yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you genuinely care about education, right. you know, Lindsay worked for the teachers yeah. union. Don't not talk about right. it. Right. Michelle yeah. is an educator. Yeah. You should absolutely talk about it. 
And I mean, I think this is part of paying attention to your district. If you're hearing voters talk to yeah. you about it, then yeah. you need to know about it and you do need to have positions on it. And I, I really think it comes down to that. What are people, you have to be a good listener if yeah. you're a candidate. What are people telling you they care about? What are they telling you they're interested in? Yeah. If you're knocking at people, knocking on people's doors, talking to people at football games on Friday nights, and you're out in your community meeting them, which you have to be as a candidate, and no one ever brings up that they care about abortion, mm-hmm. then probably don't talk about abortion. Yeah. Right. Like I care about that a lot. Yeah. But if literally no one's telling you that that's a top issue, but you're hearing a lot about how this nice school district had kids overdose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then talk about opioids. Learn right. about it. Hear them. Hear what they need. What are you missing? What could be doing better for yeah. you? Yeah. And talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, on the kind of dumb as a woman candidate who's going to take care of your kids while you're out there running. Yeah. I do think those questions in a large part have been shamed out of hopefully yeah. a lot of yeah. interviews, but you sure. know, just be ready with an answer. It's just part of being prepared. If it comes, you know, they're going to ask, say something nice about your opponent, yeah. right? They're going to, they're going to say some kind of eye rolly questions and you yeah. just have to be ready to roll with the punches. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you look ahead to 2020, I know you're really tired and don't want to yet, but when you look ahead, do you feel optimistic? Do you feel like there's been a little bit of a shift? Things are moving in the direction you would hope for? Or do you think, I mean, it feels like it's a, it once has shifted, but also it's still a really big climb mm-hmm. ahead for you know, any Democrat who wants to try and pursue the White House. I think I'm optimistic. Yeah. I have to I check in with myself yeah. daily about that. Yeah. Um so I think when we saw people get so excited about Beto and Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum, mm-hmm. I have kind of rolled my eyes in the past about the idea that everybody should get to be inspired by candidates mm-hmm. because my first campaign was Carrie Edwards. Yeah. And you know what was not inspiring? <laughs> Being 21 and listening to John Kerry talk about the Vietnam War. But I was like, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Sometimes you have to eat your vegetables because right. I don't know why we're at war in Iraq and the whole world seems mad at us. And I got to work on the Barack Obama campaign in mm-hmm. 2007, mm-hmm. which was amazing. Yeah. And you see you do see what the inspiring candidate does to people. I mean, yeah. it was like a religious experience yeah. at these rallies. People yeah. came like they were going to church and it was yeah. it was beautiful and i think i have been cynical and dismissive of the idea that everybody deserves that in their yeah. candidates yeah. because most people most candidates can't deliver that he's a once in a lifetime candidate like that's not that's we, not the candidate you're going to manufacture we can't, most cycle. candidates are not that inspiring yeah Right. Um, and if you expect that out of literally every candidate up and down the ballot, you will be let down all yeah, the time. Right. However, right. I think I'm coming around that what we need in our 2020 candidate is a Stacey Abrams, a mm-hmm. Beto O'Rourke, an Andrew Gillum, yeah. someone who does inspire people and bring that out because there are voters who don't vote when they don't feel it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we could shame them and we could say you need to vote every time, but they don't yeah. unless they're inspired. And there is polling 
specifically, I think of Latino voters, but it was like, why, why don't you vote in this election or every election? And like 40% of them, the response was, I'm not inspired by any candidate. Mm. And so I can roll my eyes (laughs) and be like, why do you think you deserve to be inspired by every candidate? He, Barack Obama was once in a lifetime. We just don't get it all that often. But at the same time, if that's what they're saying, that they need to be inspired, then I think we have to listen and we need to work on that a little bit. We yeah. need to work on it because the the whole discussion around Bush was we need someone who's electable, right? John Kerry's yeah. electable. John solid. Edwards is electable, yeah. solid. People will be comfortable with them. Well, it didn't work. Yeah. And then Barack Obama inspired everybody right. to believe something they didn't think was possible right. was possible, and it worked. Yeah. So we got – he was once in a lifetime, but we got to find the next one. And I think Beto and Andrew Gillum and Stacey mm-hmm. did show inspiring candidates can – totally changed the landscape in a state that you thought was impossible. Right. Texas. Yeah. Georgia. You yeah. Know? So even where we lose, and I, I'm trying to be optimistic about some of these seats in Allegheny County that are still keeping me up at night, <laughs> even where we lose, if we made that progress and we got a lot closer, um, that it can happen in the next cycle, that all of that work you put in we just have to keep building on it yeah. and use that momentum to take us over the line in 2020. And I, you know, I am optimistic that it's, it's possible. Let's leave it there. I like that as a good end note. Abby, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks I for really having me. It was Absolutely. fun to talk to you about Yes, this. it went by really fast, right? Yeah. Good to talk for another hour. Thanks so much also to uh, Chair and Law Offices, our sponsor for supporting the show. And thanks for listening to the broadcast podcast. Broadcast Podcast is proud to be a member of the Sorgatron Media family. 